Hi, this is Dave Spector, and I'm glad to be a guest on Talkin' Blues. You've had a busy week. You said that you, you've been playing, but how do you decide when you play when you don't? How does that? Well, um, you know, when offers come in, I... Um, if they're reasonable offers uh, and they don't involve complicated logistics, I generally, I love to play, so right. I'm, uh, I'm open to offers and that's generally how I get a lot of my gigs. I'm not the best hustler salesman, so I'm not, you know, working the phones and email and social media every day trying to get gigs like a lot of bands are. Right. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be part owner of a club now outside of Chicago for the last 10 years, and that's helped, you know, supplement my uh, <clears throat> my livelihood in such a way where I don't have to gig as much as I used to. So um, was it difficult when you were, before this, that when you were trying to get a lot of gigs? It could be. It could be, you know, but I'm based in Chicago, so there are more places to play blues than anywhere else in the world, and... Um, been fortunate to have a lot of albums out on Delmark, which uh, has a pretty strong international reputation, so I've had the opportunity to play overseas quite a bit. Um, I haven't toured a lot nationally over the years. I just played the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival in May, which was great. Um, playing a, uh, the Trinidadio Blues Fest in southern Colorado in August. Nice. But I'm, I'm not by no means a, a blues road warrior. I did that for many years as a sideman when I was starting out back in the 80s and um, tried it a little bit as a band leader, but was able to make a living just kind of staying close to home, playing a lot in Chicago. I used to play 15 nights a month or more, and now I'm probably playing six or seven. So tell me about the beginning. Tell me about how it all started for you. Um, I was raised in Chicago in the city, a very musical family, um, with an older brother who played blues harmonica and used to go see Howlin' Wolf and Hound Dog Taylor and Otis Rush and Muddy Waters, and I'm nine years younger than him. Okay. And he would come home and tell me about these guys. And um, my older sister plays guitar and sings, you know, folk music and, and rock and roll. Oh, really? All, all, you know, they're both hobbyist musicians. Um, my parents, uh, my late father was a huge music fan. Um, took me to see B.B. King and Bobby Bland, I think, when I was about 11. Um, my parents were mostly passionate about classical music, but also listened to a lot of folk music. And there's a radio, a classical radio station in Chicago called WFMT that's still going, and they still have a show on Saturday nights called The Midnight Special. So it's a classical station, but they have this variety show on Saturday nights that I grew up listening to as a kid where you would hear folk blues, you'd hear Lead Belly, you'd hear Big Bill Brunsey, and um, between that and hearing my brother's records, I was always listening to a lot of music, but the, the sound and the feeling and the power of the blues, I remember, struck me at a very young age and just spoke to me like, you know, nothing else. It was, it was, it was really a powerful experience. I remember hearing, hearing the voices and hearing the guitar. And, yeah, I was listening to, you know, The Doors and Neil Young and The Grateful Dead and The Stones, but then I would hear, you know, Muddy Waters or Junior Wells or, or Big Bill, and I just thought this music is, like, on another level in terms of its soulfulness and power and inspiration. So um, <clears throat> I started playing guitar my first year in college when I was 18, just kind of for fun. That's pretty late. Yeah. And what were you playing at that point? Basketball. 
<laughs> I was a big jock before, oh, okay. before guitar. Um, no, but musically, <laughs> what did you start playing oh, on the guitar? Oh, I took, a, I took a nylon string acoustic guitar to college just for fun, just to play and learn how. That was, you know, when I was learning and I started meeting musicians and started not um, being too inspired to go to class and, going, and go out to clubs. And I went to school um, about three hours south of Chicago at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. And um, Buddy Guy and Junior Wells and Coco Taylor and Magic Slim would come down and play at the student union. And I heard that. And um, it, just like as a kid, when I heard, you know, Muddy or Big Bill on the radio seeing these guys live and Coco, you know, with her band, that just, it just really spoke to me. I was listening to, I was always into rock and roll. And, you know, I was in college when bands like U2 and R.E.M. were just starting to break through, and mm -hmm. I remember listening to stuff like that. But the blues just, you know, just struck me as something being really strong and spoke to me in a way that made me want to try and play it. And how easy was that to try to play it at that young age? Uh, pretty daunting and difficult. You know, I'd spend hours in my uh, my dorm room or my, my, I'd live in like group houses with a bunch of artists and musicians in college. And I would just, you know, sit in my room and play along with, with records, you know, with Magic Sam and Otis Rush. And I'd record myself playing just so I could kind of hear what I was doing. So the idea of um, learning by ear was mm -hmm. easy for you? Um, it, it became easier, it, you know, it, it's still a learning process, right. but I was able to do it. I was able to, you know, I teach, I teach a lot of uh, blues students and I encourage my students to try to learn how to play along with records. Okay. And do, you were taught by Steve Freund, is that correct? Yeah, you know, when I, I, I left college and decided to move back to Chicago, immerse myself in the Chicago blues scene. So at this point you're thinking, I'm going to be a musician. Yeah, oh yeah. I decided in college, after three years in college, that I wanted to try to be a blues musician. And did you know what that meant? Um, or did you have an idea as to, what, what was your idea of what that would be? I, you know, I, I didn't think about it um, in terms other than it was something I knew I wanted to try. And had you been playing in college with bands? Not really. Wow. No. You know, not really at all. You know, I, w I, I knew that I needed to take a break from school, and I knew that I was in love with this music, and I knew Chicago was the world capital of the blues, and I wanted to get involved in the scene. And one of the first jobs I got was being a shipping clerk at Delmark Records. Um, another early job I got after college was being a doorman at Blues on Halstead, where I'd work, you know, four nights a week, and get to hear this music and get paid to listen to it. <laughs> so know. this was the thinking. This is your way into the blues world. I, I don't know if I really thought it out or planned it out. When I, I just knew I needed a break from school, and I was in love with music, and I wanted to pursue guitar more. And I remember telling some of my classmates, they remind me still, that you know I told them I wanted to be a blues musician when I was in college, and you know why be in school? I, I mean, I, I think my thinking was that I was going to take a break right. from college. And you're still taking that break. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I want to get one of those honorary degrees one day. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like to try to get into that scene back then? So you're, you're, you're obviously 
um, working the door and you're working in a record company, but yeah. to be a musician and to be accepted into the scene, was that a difficult thing? Um, it wasn't that difficult. You know, I, I generally have found up until today, and when I was starting out, um, a lot of the legendary blues musicians to just be very down-to-earth, friendly, easy, easily approachable people. Mm -hmm. So I was... Um, you know, I was a, the new kid on the block, and they knew I was learning how to play guitar, and they knew I worked, you know, at Delmark, and I worked at a prominent blues club, so that gave me some cred. And then when I'd asked to sit in, they generally would be encouraging, you know. So until you did that, were you just practicing with records? Yeah, yeah, practicing with records, practicing with friends. You know, I had a couple jamming buddies. And I got to Steve Freund through Jimmy Johnson. Okay. I remember meeting Jimmy and loving his playing. And I was working for Delmark, and we were, you know, ship. I was packing up his records, his LPs, North South at the time, right. you know, to ship. And um, I asked Jimmy for lessons, and he invited me over to his house, gave me a couple lessons, and he goes, you know, I got a guy you should meet who I think I think might be able to help you. And he introduced me to Steve. Wow. So Steve kind of took me under his wing, you know, and showed me a lot, hired me. Um, I told you I played in Toronto and in Canada. And right. He would take me up to Canada. He took me to Europe on, I think, the first or second time I ever played in Europe. And we, we, we backed up Snooky Pryor and Big Moose Walker. So, so what was that like? Like when, when you had those opportunities with in the beginning of your, of your career and playing with these legends? Yeah, it was um, slightly intimidating. Uh, very thrilling and um, just a great learning experience. I was, you know, kind of a nervous early 20-something guitar player. And I was playing rhythm guitar, which was good. That's right. a great way to start, learning how to back up other guitar players and back up singers and comp, comp behind people. So, um, honestly, I was okay, but I wasn't really getting good, I think, until probably in my late 20s. Um, Is that just the, the hours that you put into it, or would, did something happen that made you better? And no, I just think it's a matter of time, you know, before. Just a time and development and um, practice, patience. You know, it just takes time. I mean, I'm still, I've been doing it now for 33 years, and I'm still, you know, Growing and learning, and realizing that there are still, there's still a long way to go. Mm -hmm. It's you know it's a it's a lifelong process for sure. Have you ever questioned doing what you do? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a tough way to make a living, and I, for over twenty years, it was my main source of income. And um, you know, I grew up in a uh, a nice middle class neighborhood, and. I went to private high school with some very uh, well-to-do kids and families, and a lot of my friends have become very successful. And you know, I'm, uh, I've been, I was struggling over the years to kind of make ends meet. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I thought, man, this is tough. Should I consider doing something else? So, what would have kept you in the game when you go through something like that? What was it that always pulled you back and? you know, continue and obviously continue for many years? Oh, good question. You know, I think it's it's my calling. You know, it's, it's what I'm, 
most comfortable doing and what I'm better at than doing most anything else. And, right. you know, just kind of is who I am, the career of being a guitarist. Okay, so you worked for Delmark and you're signed to Delmark. Was there any connection? <laughs> um, is there any connection? Well, you know, there was definitely the familiarity aspect that I think helped. You know, I worked for Delmark for a while. I, I got to know Bob. I started my own band. It was easy to get him to come out to a gig. And right. they were starting to get active again. You know, they weren't very active in the 80s. They were starting to get active when he signed me to do a record in 1990. And then they started to get real active in the 90s when they built their own studio in 93. And they were doing a lot of records then. And I was working with a lot of different singers. And I started to produce a little. So, you know, it's it, Delmark, they just got sold. But mm -hmm. it was a really small, tight-knit kind of family organization. And I got to know them really well, having worked for them. I also worked at the Jazz Record Mart. And um, they liked what I was doing musically. So, so in your time of working at Delmark, did you, did you get the insight of the business of the blues? Yeah, like I presume sure. you would. Sure. And what was that reality like for you? Was it encouraging or was it? Yeah, it was encouraging because I saw these artists, um, mostly older when I started out, you know, touring the world and... Um, making records and playing a lot and just kind of working at their craft and um, not getting rich, mm -hmm. but, you know, making a living and playing the music that I loved. So it was inspiring. And, and then I, I saw younger musicians. Um, I don't sing. So I saw, you know, I remember listening to Albert Collins instrumentals for hours and hours thinking, wow, this can be done. And Freddie King as well, although, I mean, Freddie was an amazing singer. Mm -hmm. And then I would hear artists like Anson Funderburg and Ronnie Earl, who were leading bands mm -hmm. while not being a singer. That inspired me. So Did I, you ever think about singing? Or you tried and just didn't? Um, I didn't. I, I, I was always encouraged to, but I just never really felt like it was me. Mm -hmm. And um, I still think about trying. And when I do it, and when I do try, something about it just doesn't feel right. It just doesn't feel like it's me. And I feel like I express myself um, on good nights with my guitar in such a way that that satisfies me. You right. know, yeah, it would probably be better for my career if I sang. But singing blues is like, to do it well, that's like sacred ground. And there's so many shitty blues singers out there that just make me want to, just make me shut it off. But a lot of times, that's just the economics of it, right? I would think. Yeah. I mean, I just think that if, if, if one has a band, sure. you would try to get the best musicians possible and surround yourself with the best bass player, best drummer, or whatever. And hopefully, you would surround yourself with a great singer. Yeah. But oftentimes, it's just an yes. added expense, right? Oh, I know. I mean, I've, I've made the mistake of hiring some you know, uh, second-rate singers, and, you know, it's tough to always find the best people, mm -hmm. you know, unless you're working really high-paying gigs and able to offer musicians something special. You know, there's a lot of competition. There are a lot of bands. So right. it's tough to, to always hire the best 
the best people. So tell me about the thinking of, you know, you, you spent your years learning, playing with other people, learning the, the craft. At what point did you decide, I want to start my own band, and what was the thinking behind that? What, was it, what were you hoping to achieve with that? I wanted to start my own band because I wasn't able to fulfill the vision of, of how I wanted to play and what I wanted to play as a sideman. I was playing other people's music, right. and I was, you know, I was starting to feel like I need to be able, be able to solo more, play tunes that I wanted to play more, and it was frustrating not being able to do that, and I realized the only way I was going to be able to do that was to start my own band and be able to make those choices on what material to play. That's one of the aspects of having your own band, but there's also the business side, there's also hiring the people and whatever. Yeah. That, did that come easy to you? Um, the business side, no. Um, hiring people, yeah. I mean, be, being in Chicago, there's such a huge pool of talent here to choose from. It wasn't hard to hire really good people early. Okay. You know, I remember hiring, you know, guys like Bob Stroger and Robert Covington and Willie Smith um, to play my gigs, you know, when I first started out. And you know, that's pretty amazing for a, a, a young, I think I started my own band when I was 26, you know, mm -hmm. to be able to call these guys and, and they'd say yes, you know, and Bob Stroger had played with, you know, Otis Rush and Willie Smith spent, what, 30 years with Muddy. So yeah, that was, that was a pretty cool feeling to be able to hire those guys and, and say, hey, on drums with me tonight is uh, Robert Covington or Willie Big Eyes Smith. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, the economics of it, you know, it's tough. It's tough to find uh, living wage work <laughs> as a musician sometimes. Even in Chicago. It can be, yeah, it can be. But I mean, could you, like you just said before, that you, you do most of your gigs around, in and around Chicago, mm -hmm. um, and you don't tour a lot in North America. I know you do some tours in Europe. Mm -hmm. So is it the choice that says it's, it makes more sense to be staying in Chicago and getting the gigs as opposed to moving out and to larger territory and incurring other costs and other headaches by touring. Like, is that a choice that you've made? or? Yeah, yeah, it is. I just, I, ne I didn't, I, I never made the choice to, you know, make a living on the road, which a lot of musicians do, and I admire them, and um, sometimes I pity them yeah. because it's a tough life. But that's just something I chose not to do. I've, I've, I've had two parents that have had serious health issues. My father's gone and my mother has Parkinson's disease and I'm the only child among three siblings that's still in Chicago. Okay. So I've also felt the, um, the necessity to stay close to home and help take care of my folks. Right, well that makes sense. Yeah. Um, tell me about how much the Chicago blues scene has changed since you first started. Quite a bit, quite a bit. Um, you know, I was lucky. I call it the golden age of Chicago blues, the stuff that was recorded in the 50s and 60s and, and 70s. And I was lucky enough to be able to come up when a lot of the guys from that era were still performing a lot. You know, I mm -hmm. could hear Junior Wells and Otis Rush and Robert Jr. Lockwood and Louis Myers and the list goes on and on. Sonny Land Slim, all the great piano players. Chicago used to be such a great blues piano town. And I heard a lot of that when I was coming up, and now it's really hard to find. Why is that, do you think? 
Why are the piano players gone? Yeah, good question. Not gone entirely, you know, but it just doesn't seem like there are many. Yeah, I think, you know, the style has changed into a more uh, kind of funk rock influence that um, makes it really hard for acoustic piano players to even be heard. Right. Um, you know, what we call traditional blues is, is a little harder to find these days. And, you know, I don't know who's going to, I don't, I, you know, I think the styles have to evolve. And the way it's evolving now is that there are, you know, great players in Chicago that still play the traditional styles. Guys like John Primer and Larry Bell come to mind. Um, but uh, most of the of the bands kind of go more for the funk rock sounds, kind of go more for the uh, the shtick, you know, appealing to the tourists who kind mm -hmm. of dominate the clubs here in Chicago. And where do you put yourself in that? Um, I don't have a lot of shtick, I know that. I just play, <laughs> I just play, and I like, um, you know, I like incorporating elements of traditional blues, and I also like like to think that I've kind of developed my own style of playing that incorporates um, elements of R&B and a lot of different influences and elements of jazz and I think it's all blues I think it's all blues based I know it is mm -hmm. um, so I've just you know tried to uh, maintain and develop my own voice as an artist and as a guitarist and I like people to hear it so. You, was there a moment where you realized that you do have your own voice, that you have a sound that's unique to yours, and and I don't know if it's a, a, a moment that you could identify, but tell me how you got to that point, like who you imitated, who you were influenced yeah. by, and then how you, at one point it became something. Yeah, it's hard to say when it happened, but, you know, I think it's it's so common for for artists to imitate at first. And I would imitate Steve Freund, I would imitate T-Bone Walker, you know, not imitate, but just, you know, play their riffs right. and incorporate them into my playing. And I'm not the kind of guy that, you know, tried to copy riffs note for note, as I think a lot of players do. Which but do you not start that way? Like when you're first learning, it's all about copying, isn't it? Um, it is, but I was never good enough to be able to like copy entire solos. <laughs> right. I just, you know, I, I know I know players that can do that, right. and I hear it, and they do it on record, and they do it live, and I'm, I kind of think like, well, what's the point? I mean, it's yeah, it's a tribute, but don't do it too much. Right. You know, do it a little. I didn't have a good enough ear to be able to copy a lot, but I would listen and listen and listen to Magic Sam and T-Bone Walker and I'd see guys like Steve play all the time and I'd see guys like Otis Rush play all the time and some of their playing, I mean, clearly rubbed off on me in such a way that when I was starting out, I really didn't know what else to play mm -hmm. other than that stuff that I was learning and copying from them. So, And then, then where does it go from there? Yeah. So you, you learn a language, you have all these riffs and things in right. your head, and then how does it become using those and making it your own? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it just comes from years of playing out, um, and I think it's really important to stop listening to, you know, 
your influences for a while. I think it, it's really healthy. Mm-hmm. It's also sometimes really healthy to just stop listening to blues for a while. Right. You know, if you're playing it all the time, listen to other kinds of music. And I got seriously into jazz. And I started listening, you know, I was listening to Horace Silver and Kenny Burrell and John Coltrane and Dexter Gordon a lot. And um, Tell me what you would have gotten from them. Um, a different feeling, you know. I think they're all very bluesy players, but I think they're a different feeling and a stronger sense of melody and a stronger sense of phrasing mm-hmm. and a, a different touch, a different feel. Um, you know, I would still always, I wouldn't listen to jazz unless I could hear some blues in it. And it's pretty easy to find right. a lot of great jazz with blues in it. It's also pretty easy to find a lot of great jazz that has no blues feeling. Um, and I would never really listen to that unless I was, you know, in an elevator. <laughs> <laughs> but but when you when you went a little more towards the jazz, and I know you said it's still laced with blues, but yeah. was that a risky thing to do in any way? No, I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I loved it, and I still love it. And, you know, what, one of the reasons that ins- inspired me to do that was that I would, you know, talk to Otis Rush or read interviews with Jimmy Vaughn, and they would talk about listening to Jimmy Smith records and Kenny Burrell records and, you know, say things like, well, I want to learn how to play guitar like a jazz saxophone player plays his instrument. Mm-hmm. So, and then I, you know, w- one of the teachers that I had Early on was a guy named Reggie Boyd. Reggie Boyd was uh, a chess session musician, played uh, one, of his, one of his most famous guitar parts was on Jimmy Rogers' Rock This House, the original on chess, record, right. on chess records. And Reggie was kind of the go-to teacher for a lot of blues players. Howlin' Wolf took lessons from him, Otis Rush took lessons from him, Matt Murphy did, Jimmy Johnson did, Fenton Robinson did. Uh-huh. And what Reggie did was he would, he would show blues players jazz chord voicings and teach them jazz lines and um, you know I knew that a lot of the the, the, the the blues men that I loved you know listened to jazz were influenced by it heard what I started hearing in it so yeah I didn't see any danger in it I, I saw it as a uh, as a logical uh, step in terms of you know what you listen to tell me about the access to those people like Otis Rush what they gave you and, and, and what you've learned from them? Um, I didn't know Otis very well. I played with him once or twice. Um, I had a great experience where I was playing at Buddy Guy's one night, the old legends, and um, Buddy was at the bar, and Otis was on the other side of the room shooting pool, and I was on stage. <laughs> and I <laughs> What's was, that like? I was probably like 32 or something. Yeah, it was... <laughs> I just, you know, kind of had to make myself forget that they were there and or just try to play my ass off and play as best as I could. And Buddy, as he often does, got up on stage that night. And in those days, he would sit sit in on guitar. These days, he pretty much just will sing as he sits in with bands. So he brought his guitar up and we started playing. And then he said, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to bring up another friend of mine who's over there shooting pool. Please uh, welcome to the stage Otis Rush. And I got to play with Buddy and Otis at the same time. Um, Otis was was only singing. Right. Um, but Otis, when he was on, you know, and he, he kind of had the history of being rather erratic, mm-hmm. um, slightly unpredictable. But when he was on, he, he played uh, electric blues guitar 
at the highest, most soulful, most intense, most powerful level I've ever heard wow. from anyone. I mean, it was just brilliant, deep, deep, deep blues feeling and incredible vibrato and phrasing and, you know, just stuff that would make your, your hair stand up when he was on. So when, when you're experiencing this on stage with him, well, I guess in that case he was singing, but when you witness him playing something like that, is it easy for you to automatically say, that's what I want to do and I, I can do that? or like No, how? no, not easy to say that I can do it, but easy to say that this is some of the most inspiring live blues guitar I've ever heard, and it's going to inspire me to want to get better and try to, and try to emulate that right. that he's doing. And that's what it's all about. That's why I still love seeing live music as much as I can, because it can be powerful and inspiring and 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 very meaningful. Right. Um, another person I wanted to ask you about was Tad Robinson, who you've worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about how that happened. Uh, I heard Tad. He was living in Chicago. He's originally from New York. Uh, he had a band called the Hesitation Blues Band. This was back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I used to go to a club on the north side. It was one of the first places I ever heard live blues. It was called Biddy Mulligans. And I remember hearing the Hesitation Blues Band there with Tad, and I just heard this voice and great harmonica playing. And it was, you know, one of the best white blues singers I had ever heard at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got to be friends, and Tad's a great guy. And I was... Um, looking to do an album well before I was looking to do the album I was looking for a singer and this was in the early 90s after Bark and Bill and I had parted ways I produced an album for Jesse Fortune a really good um, straight ahead Chicago B.B. King inspired blues singer who was kind of limited in his repertoire didn't have a big repertoire didn't have a big range he was great at you know, a B.B. King shuffle or slow blues. Um, so I wanted a singer who could kind of do a little more, you know. And I uh, asked Tad if he wanted to uh, work together and maybe make a record together. And, uh, yeah, we recorded Bluplicity together, mm-hmm. which was my second album as a leader. That came out in 93 or 94. So you were doing production work bef- by the time you were before your second album? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So tell me about that. Tell me how you got into that, and tell me what makes you a good producer. Um, yeah, I I knew that Bob was interested in doing a Jesse Fortune record. Mm-hmm. Jesse recorded, um, I forgot the label, but he did a, a song, a Willie Dixon song called Too Many Cooks that Buddy Guy played guitar on in the 60s. Right. So he had a couple singles that were kind of well-known with, with blues aficionados, and he was working the South Side, West Side clubs. And um, I don't remember how I met him, but I knew that there was interest in kind of his comeback, so to speak. And Delmark was interested in doing it. And I had a band together that was pretty tight. And um, Bob agreed to let me produce the album. I helped choose some of the material that Jesse would record. I wrote, I think I wrote a, a couple songs on the record. I wrote the title track called Fortune Telling Man. And, you know, the, my, my role as a producer was to put the band together, add some horns, um, choose the material, work with Jesse in the studio, 
who hadn't really done a lot of studio work over the years. And at this point, had you done a lot of studio? No, I hadn't really done a lot either. So I was kind of a producer in training. <laughs> and what was that like for you? Um, you know, I think it turned out pretty well. I think we, we you know, most of my albums are, are um, trying to kind of create a live sound and a live vibe <laughs> without too much production work. I've never, you know, we never had a huge role as a producer in kind of shaping the album with tons of different sounds and shapes. Pretty straight ahead production. So at that point I was just kind of learning how to do it and, you know, I think I did an okay job. <laughs> <laughs> and so you've done quite a few albums over the years. Yeah. What are you yeah. up to now? Like how many albums have you done? Um, I honestly don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a long list. Yeah, I think I'm on about 30 albums. Wow. And I think I have about 11 or 12 as a leader, you know, some backing other singers. Right. And so is it easy for you to come up with new material? Like, okay, so do you have any plans for the next album? Yeah, I'm actually um, in the midst of a somewhat long process, probably over the past year or so, of getting material together for a new album. Delmark was just sold, and I just met with them. And we're talking about maybe doing something. And I've been, you know, I have probably the uh, framework for about seven new tunes right now. Okay. And, you know, probably need to work on those and tighten those up and maybe find a couple singers to uh, feature on those tunes. And some of the tunes are instrumentals as well. So with the industry changing the way it has over the last five, ten years, and it's changed a lot, the, the CD has become a different thing. What, what does that mean for you in order, to, like, is it important for you to get a CD out? And if you do, what does that mean? Because it doesn't sound like you, you're out there trying to get material so you can start another road tour or whatever. Right. No, I'm not, that's not why I make records. Um, I, you know, I want to make a record now. It's been, it's been almost four years since I put out my last record, and I just want to kind of document, right. for lack of a better term, where I'm at now, and, you know, my playing is developing, and there are things on my last record that I wish I had done differently, you know, like in terms of my tones, um, but, in, you know, I just kind of want to uh, work on getting new material together so I can record it and start playing it more, you know, how long can you play? I mean, I have a pretty br big repertoire of original material, mm -hmm. but... I get to a point where I just want to play something else, you know. It's like how many, how many times can I play these tunes of mine that have become standards in my world, right. and how much, you know, it's challenging to sometimes um, put new ideas into older songs. Um, um, is it easy to come up with new ideas? Like, I wouldn't say easy, but it's definitely. Uh, is it an ongoing it's rewarding. Process? It's ch it's challenging and rewarding, and yeah, it's an ongoing process, and it just kind of requires, on my end, just you know, focus and concentration and practice. But I'm, I feel I feel like I'm capable of doing it uh, fairly easily if I put my mind to it. Okay, so when you say that the there was a couple of songs that you weren't happy with the tone you got in the last album, mm -hmm. does that drive you nuts? Um, it well, can. how does that happen that 
you, you never got to that point and you released it. Well, it's funny. I mean, I love I loved Message in Blue when it came out. I was really happy with it. And I still am in a lot of ways. Otis Clay's on it. Mm-hmm. I'm really happy with some of the songs that I wrote. And I'm really happy with the way I play. I'm just talking about my overall tone on the whole album. I was in... I was in a place, and I don't know why, but it was I was just kind of going for a darker, grittier, dirtier sound, and I got it. Mm-hmm. I'm just I just don't like it right now as much as I used to. You know? Really, but five years from now it could change again, and you might look back on it right. more fondly. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. It's funny when you. Um, a lot of the times I don't really like listening to my recordings at all. But then you hear it, say, seven years later or ten years later, and you've you totally forgotten what you've done. Right. And I remember being, I was, I was at a friend's restaurant, and I was just having lunch, and he plays music in his restaurant a lot, and I heard this music, and I didn't realize it was me. <laughs> you know. And that happened to me once, once when I was driving, and I was on a, listening to a blues station, and they were playing this slow blues, and I really liked it. I was like, who is that? And I didn't realize it was me. It was me. No wonder you liked it. <laughs> but, but don't get me wrong. I've also heard stuff that I've done that I'm like, oh, God, what was I thinking? Did I really just play that? You know. Tell I'm, me, on the opposite side, tell me about the first time you heard yourself on the radio and what that felt like. Yeah, I wish I could remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that was a long time ago, 1991. So what is that? 27 years ago yeah Yeah. I can't remember that far back but I remember I mean that's a thrill it's still a thrill when you hear yourself on the radio the other thing you referred to was your role at space Mm -hmm. tell me about how that came about initially Um, so space is a a nightclub and recording studio in Evanston which is just north of Chicago along the lakefront Uh, we've been open for 10 years I had always wanted to be involved in a club, you know, helping curate a club, helping run a club. It's not um, an easy thing, though, right? Oh, no, It's no, a very risky no. business. Yeah, it is. It is. And we struggled for the first few years, no doubt. And fortunately, I have a partner who, um, his, who I've known since college, and we talked about the club idea over the years. He's a real estate developer, so, um, and he's from Evanston. And Evanston, okay, I would presume that's the major reason behind it, but does that mean you draw people from Evanston only, or do oh, no. a lot of people from Chicago come? We draw, draw people from all over the Midwest. Okay. You know, it's a really unique venue. It's a serious listening room, you know, where people actually pay close attention to the music and right. the great lights and great sound. There are no televisions. Um, it's, they're generally seated shows at tables. Sometimes we do all standing room shows, but it's really set up. The focus is about the, the music, and we set up the studio and the green room to be extremely musician-friendly. Musicians love playing there. Our audience loves the vibe in the room. Um, but the studio is a separate thing than the live entity, right? So you yeah, have to go in to record. in the or same you're... building. Okay. Yeah, and musicians often hang out in the studio you know, before the show, we have, we have, you know, three house drum kits, a, a beautiful grand piano, a house B3, probably 15 guitar amps for house backline. You know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, exceptional um, in terms of what we provide and offer. And, you know, being a, a musician who's played all over the world in different types of venues, it really is, it really does stand out. 
What's the capacity, the seating capacity? Seating, seating capacity is just under 200. Okay. And, I, and at those shows, we can get like an additional 30 or 40 people in. So most of our shows are about a 240 cap. Wow. And we book everything from jazz to funk to singer-songwriters to bluegrass to uh, indie rock and a lot of blues. And so you said it was really tough initially. Mm -hmm. How long did it take to get to a point where it was established or that there was a decent yeah, following? Yeah, probably about three years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's been very rewarding. And your role is to book the bands, to manage I advise our booker. I, I book some shows, but we have a full-time talent buyer. And um, he's a younger guy in his 30s, and when he started with us, he was in his early 20s, I think, and my partner and I kind of helped educate him on the music that we love. You know, we're the older generation. Uh, my partner's 60, I'm 55, and, you know, we um, were able to book people like Richard Thompson and Nick Lowe and Paul Barrer from Little Feet and Todd Rundgren and, um, and a lot of the great blues players. We had Hubert Sumlin there a couple times, Pine Top a couple times, Honey Boy Edwards many times. Eddie Clearwater would have his birthday party there every January. We'd book Otis Clay every year. We have Jimmy Vaughn coming for two shows later this month. Um, so it's a pretty wide range of American roots music, English music. Um, we book a lot of New Orleans bands that are touring through Chicago. We've had Dr. John, we had Alan Toussaint a number of times. Wow. So, so tell me about being on that side of the business, how that might have changed your perspective of things or mm -hmm. what you've learned from that experience. It makes me wish I was a solo singer-songwriter guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> well, could, you can still do it. Who could drive to a gig in a small car and sell out a room and walk away with six thousand dollars know? <laughs> <laughs> or more but it's a, it's a tough business so yeah. like do you have a greater appreciation for that end of the business as opposed to being I, yeah i you know i mean having toured in my younger days um i have a greater appreciation and respect for these artists that are on the road all mm -hmm. the time that are going from town to town in their vans or or little touring vehicles or sometimes their cars and you know they just drove in from St. Louis and they're heading to Madison and then they're going to Minneapolis and then they're going up to Canada and it, you know that that kind of reopened my eyes to um, the musicians uh, the lifestyle of a musician on the road um, and it's been great to see you know our booker who is like I said a lot younger than us would find these bands that were just starting out and that were on their way up. A band like the Alabama Shakes played mm -hmm. for us when they were touring in a rickety old van. And, um, you know, less than a year later, they were selling out 3,000-seat venues. And then I went to see them at Lollapalooza, and uh, their singer Brittany was sitting in with Paul McCartney, and they just played our club a couple years ago. Right. You know, so um, it's great to see younger bands uh, break through you know, after they've started out in, mm -hmm. in, in smaller venues like ours. And hopefully that's the way it works. It just doesn't yeah. often work that way. Yeah, right? yeah. It, uh, you know, in the blues, unfortunately, there's just not a, not a commercial audience. We had Gary Clark Jr. kind of right before he hit it big. 
Um, but, you know, it's just the nature of the music and the nature of the audience where the blues artists uh, rarely break through to that bigger audience. Tell me about your passion for the blues. Does it still, is it still the same level as when you first started? Um, maybe not. It still, it still speaks to me and moves me in ways that no other music does, but it's much harder to find really good blues to listen to live. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. Right. You know, it's it's not hard to find good blues, um, but it's hard to find a really, really good, inspiring, great blues artist, in my opinion. And why do you think that is? Maybe I was spoiled growing no, up, <laughs> yeah. you know, where I could go hear Junior Wells sing. And, you know, I've talked about some of the people that I saw, but I saw those people all, like, on a weekly basis. And um, it's, I think it's just also a matter of my tastes. Um, in a place where there's some great guitar players out there, but you know my 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 favorites are Early Buddy Guy and Magic Sam and Otis Rush and T Bone and um, it's just I don't want to listen to people that imitate that. Mm-hmm. You know, like what's the point? I can listen to the original, right. but I don't hear people taking it to a new level that really speak to me in a way that makes me as passionate as I used to be. Right. Uh, my final question is you've, you basically made your career in the blues, being a musician. Mm-hmm. Tell me what it is about you that has allowed you to survive and to maintain this as a career. Hmm. Sorry for the pause, I'm just thinking. That's good. (laughs) What keeps me going is the fact that I still feel like I'm growing as an artist. And that um, inspires me to keep doing what I do. And the more that I've done it, I think more people know about me. My goal is just to have more and more more people hear what I do, hear my records. Um, On the other hand, I don't want to be that road warrior musician. I have a club now. I'm comfortably based in Chicago, which I think is a great place to be. So what keeps me going is just a pursuit of the art that I love and just kind of I know that's who I am and I feel like that's what I'm here to do. Well, I want to thank you for this time. I really like it. was on short notice that I called you and uh, you're kind enough to meet with me today. So oh, my pleasure. Glad to be on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks.